pray, shall we? What a great promise that we have the privilege of singing back to you. When you come with trumpet sound, oh, may we be found dressed in your righteousness alone, faultless on that day to stand before your throne. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us in our place. You took upon yourself all of our sin, all of it. And you said it's paid in full, finished. No more. We don't have to bear it anymore because of what you've done for us, Lord. So, Lord, I pray now that uh, you'll help us to not only appreciate what you've done for us, but also to put it into practical use in our lives. And, Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture today, it's going to be very, very practical, full of warnings and full of encouragement. Help us, Lord, to love you and to serve you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. The group Out of the Gray, maybe uh, you have ever heard of Out of the Gray, uh, if you've been back in the day and, and uh, think about uh, Christian music. Their husband and wife team, uh, Scott and Christine Dente, they produced uh, a number of albums way, way back in the 1990s. They're a popular team, and they were well-received by many in the church and even uh, in secular world as well. Well, according to the Encyclopedia of Contemporary Christian Music, believe it or not, that is a thing, Out of the Gray chose their name for this reason. They chose it as a rebuttal to relativism, an affirmation that there are absolutes in life. Their songs communicate that the Christian life can be and even must be lived in this life, in the here and now. And this reflects a truth that our Lord told us And when he prayed to the Father, he said, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. Now, one of their songs, He Is Not Silent, contains these challenging lyrics. And as you know, I don't sing, I say. So give a listen to these lyrics. We wander through this world in disbelief, shake our heads at every tear, searching endlessly for some relief. Has he left us dying here? You know, I think about COVID, and it comes to mind with so many, right? But we've forgotten all his words. Pretend we never heard. We take our hearts and turn away. But he is not silent. He is not whispering. We are not quiet. We are not listening. He sends a lifeline. We keep resisting him. He is not silent We are not listening. We take our daily bread, and after we've been fed, we take our hearts and turn away. Well, not exactly a feel-good song, would you agree? But this is one where it hits us right where we live. How many of us as Christians experience reality hitting us hard, and we lose our bearings and sometimes even lose our hope, or at least tempted to? Our problem is so often that we put ourselves in situations that we should not be in. And when we suffer, we tend to blame God. God, have you left us here to die? And when the Lord displays His faithfulness and He continues to provide for us, what do we do? We take our daily bread after we're fed and we turn our hearts away. It's as if we're like little kids 
playing around the edge of a cliff and expecting God to take care of us. We don't seem to sense or even care about the impending doom. But we have enemies in the unseen realm who are far bigger, far more powerful than we are. They seek to destroy us completely. They're relentless. And as intelligent beings, they know how we tick. They have watched us over and over again. And they seemingly know that what we're going to do even before we do it. Now, I set the stage for this message this way, sounding the alarm because Paul did so. He did it in what we would think is the most unusual way, though. He defended the authority that the Lord gave him when Jesus sent Paul to Corinth to start the church there. For false teachers attached themselves to the church in Corinth, and they were gaining some influence. And we know how Paul was so incensed at the leader who bought into some of their influence. And for the protection of the church, what did Paul do to that man? He blasted him. And other leaders followed suit and exercised church discipline with him. So much so that they overdid it. And Paul had to actually tell them, forgive this guy. He's now repented, so bring him back. But time and influence marches on. As we remember over the last couple of weeks that we've been going through this letter, Paul seemed to win back the hearts and minds of the Corinthians. He encouraged them to be faithful to the promise that they made to contribute to the Judean famine relief project. And Paul ends his encouragement by a strong acclamation of praise in 2 Corinthians 9.15. He said, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift the gift of salvation found in Christ alone. As we know, as Paul knew, and he taught so thoroughly that there is absolutely no salvation found outside of Christ and His gospel. Every person who rejects Christ and His gospel does so at their eternal peril. That ought to shake us up. We have friends, we have relatives, we have loved ones who don't know Christ. And, you know, but that's the way it's been, though, since Jesus made that declaration when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The job the Lord Jesus has given all of us as his people is twofold. Number one, to preach the good news to the lost. And number two, to make fellow Christians to be more like Jesus. And we're going to do some of that today at our brown bag lunch, right? Who's going to be there? Anybody going to be there? Some will. Yes, I see some hands. It's great. So the Corinthians, though, they have a problem. They're allowing false teachers, along with their satanic influence, to hang around. So, Corinthians, where are the true leaders in your church? You know, in a sense, Paul is thinking the same thing. There seems to be no one to lead the church in the ways of the Lord in the church of Corinth. It seems like pastoral protection is gone. It's like the sheep are in the sheep pen, and the shepherd is missing. Wolves are at the gate ready to pounce. And with smooth talk and the influence that attracts the fleshly life of the Corinthians, they're about to be eaten alive. And so now Paul is taking it upon himself to head back to the battlefront on behalf of the Corinthians and to be their champion. 
So we're going to see in our passage today, 2 Corinthians 10, 118, that Paul takes on the challenge of the false teachers as a deadly threat to the souls of the Corinthians. Now, in this chapter, I want to point out not just one threat, though. I want to point out three threats, three threats made by the false teachers to the church in Corinth. Now, first, they were winning the affection of the Corinthians by once again attacking Paul and his character. Now, they've attacked them before, and we remember this, right? In the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, remember how they insinuated that Paul was untrustworthy. Paul told the Corinthians that he would visit them at a certain time, and when he didn't, the false teachers accused the apostle that he could not be trusted in things that really mattered. He said something like this, if Paul cannot be trusted to come and and visit you when he said he would, then he cannot be trusted when it comes to things that really matter, like spiritual truth. Today, we're going to see another direct accusation the false teachers levied upon Paul and how he handles that attack. Second, we're going to see how Paul views a spiritual danger in the Corinthians, and he calls it warfare. But the tragic thing is, the Corinthians themselves, they don't seem to understand how much spiritual danger they're in. They were slowly but surely being taken in, duped by false teachers. They were like little kids at play. And Paul was saying to the Corinthians, come out of the gray. There are absolutes in the spiritual world. Wake up. There's a battle going on. And finally, we're going to take a look at Paul's legitimate claim he had regarding the Corinthians. For this is the territory in actual geography that the Lord gave Paul and his friends. The false teachers had no authority on their soil, and so they had to butt out. So again, let's take a look at how Paul saw himself and what the false teachers accused the apostle of. So let's read together verses 1 and 2 and then skip down to verses 7 to 10. Paul writes, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much, of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So how did Paul see himself and how did he appeal to his beloved Corinthians? The meekness of Christ the gentleness of Christ, humility. But empowered by Christ's authority, one who can assert himself boldly by the divine authority of Christ who sent Paul to the Corinthians. Now, these things I just talked about, they're precious traits, aren't they? They're beautiful character qualities. But according to the spirit of the age, and even from the perspective of the false teachers, they were horrendous qualities. 
See, the absolute last thing that these false teachers wanted to display were meekness and gentleness and humility. Paul's approach was the meekness of Christ, power under control. It was the gentleness of Christ, not harshness. It was one of humility, a lowly state of heart and mind. So meekness, gentleness, and humility. Now I can imagine if these three uh, qualities were fibers, they could be woven into a doormat. For that is what most people see and oftentimes see when they see these words, especially all three of these words together. It's meekness, though, and gentleness and humility that washes feet, that offers the other cheek, that carries and goes beyond the one mile in carrying other people's heavy burdens. These things have the ability to allow the disciple of Jesus to deny self and to take up one's cross daily and to follow him. And for us, 2,000 years later, meekness and gentleness and humility are still character qualities that the Lord wants us to display. <laughs> but it's difficult to detect if we have them, isn't it? It really is. I mean, can you imagine yourself? Hey, I'm humble. <laughs> you too could be humble like me, <laughs> right? You ought to write a book, Humility and How I Attained It. Anyway, but here's a good task, though, to know if we are indeed denying ourselves and bearing our cross and displaying meekness and gentleness and humility. Here's how. Let's examine ourselves when people treat us like servants. When we knock ourselves out for others and spare no expense, invest great amounts of time and money for some grand project or give to a person in need, but get no thank you? How do we feel? How do we react? What's going on in our hearts? That will tell us whether we have meekness and humility and gentleness. But here was Paul. He was willing, as we will read in a couple chapters from now, to spend and to be spent for the souls of the Corinthians. But why would Paul put up with such garbage that the Corinthians levied on him over and over again? Because of the love that Christ had for Paul and the love that Christ controlled Paul with. Paul was Christ-like in his character and demeanor, but the false teachers accused him of two things, walking according to the flesh and presenting a poor image. So again, let's read verses 2 and 10. He says, I beg of you that when I present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. What were these false teachers all about? Star power, slick and polished, smooth and persuasive speech. Now, part of the strategy of these workers, was false teachers, was to paint Paul as a weak man in physical appearance and also having no charisma. They did concede, though, that though Paul was quite the wordsmith on paper, like a paper tiger, if you will, he wrote good letters but he did not have the inner strength to back up what he said and what he wrote. 
So briefly, let me remind you of what the kinds of things that the rank-and-file Corinthians valued, the, the, the soil, the cultural soil that the Corinthian church came out of. They valued star power, slick and polish, smooth, progressive, persuasive speech. They valued those who could move them emotionally. And so what's wrong with this picture? The false teachers accused Paul of what they were guilty of by saying that he was living his life according to the flesh. They disdained him. It was they, not Paul, who lived by the worldly ways, by the worldly standards. But on the other hand, it was Paul, not them, who had a weak physical appearance. It was Paul who had a lousy speaking ability. He he gets that. He understands. But because the false teachers had it all together, they could emotionally move people. And the Corinthians were low-hanging fruit, ripe for the taking to be led astray. But you know, the more things change, finish it. The more they stay the same, right? In our day, who doesn't really enjoy those who can act well? We all enjoy a good movie, can't we? These people who pretend for a living can often move us emotionally. As most of you know, I was a boxer when I was in high school, and the first time I saw Rocky one, remember that movie a long time ago? I was on Guam, my first duty assignment in the Air Force. It was a beautiful night on Anderson Air Base at the Outdoor Amphitheater, and I was watching the movie. And I will tell you, I remember to this day how emotionally moved I was about this movie. After I got done, I wanted to go back in the ring. I was motivated. I was excited. I wanted to go punch somebody out. No, not really. But anyway. But you know, it's not just the actors in the movies that move us. What about social media? You know, how much of social media or even the media itself is hypersensationalized? Now, we know it is, but why do we still listen to it? And it's not just the media. What about the feel-good religious speakers? How many people slavishly listen to them because these speakers can move them? The attitude so often is, forget about the truth of the matter. How do I feel when they get done? Star power. Slick and polished. Smooth, persuasive speech. As a whole, we value those things and value those people who move us emotionally as well. And though false teachers made them feel great, the Corinthians, though, seemed to be afraid of Paul, at least by means of his letters. Again, look at verse 9. Paul said he did not want to frighten them by his letters. But sometimes he had to present strong truth because of the authority the Lord gave him for building them up and not for destroying them. See, strong truth is sometimes frightening, is sometimes painful, but it's necessary. You know, in John 15, Jesus told the disciples the truth about fruit bearing. He says the Lord was the vine and the disciples were the branches. And then he gave some hard truth. He said this, if anyone in him does not bear fruit... What happens? That person's cut off and cast away as a branch and is burned. This is hard truth. This is frightening stuff. 
but it was necessary. Jesus found it necessary to tell the disciples this. Now compare this to false teachers, both in Paul's day and in our day. They would never, ever say the hard stuff. They would never say the frightening stuff. And why is that? The bottom line is they love themselves too much. And the simple truth is they don't love God's people as God defines love. And they will give an account for how they dealt with other people on the day that they stand before the Lord. And so who is Paul, according to false teachers? Someone to disdain, scary, a subpar speaker, a paper tiger, away with words but no power. He was really someone not pleasant to look at. How many scars did Paul bear, scars that he bear due to his beatings and his stonings and his shipwrecks? But who was Paul really? He was one who loved the Corinthians, one who was sent with the very authority of Christ. And Paul was not afraid to use that authority. Should the false teachers be there when Paul and his trusted friends were to come to collect the offering for the Judean Relief Fund, they will discover just how much spiritual authority that Paul has and what Paul was able to do by the Lord's authority, cast out demons, raise people from the dead, perform miracles preaching truth that no one could stand up to. That's Paul. The false teachers will experience the power of his apostolic authority when he comes. And what does this present to the Corinthians? Why did Paul explain himself this way? They needed to come out of the gray. They needed to make a choice. And the choice was this. Would they want to choose the false teachers and all of their seductive pleasantness? or the apostle to the Gentiles and the truth and the power of Christ? Will they choose false teachers who love themselves more than the Corinthians? Or choose Paul who loved the Corinthians more than himself? Now, having seen how Paul handled yet another false accusation hurled at him by false teachers, let's now take a look at Paul's view of spiritual reality. See, Paul saw things as dire a battlefield with casualties all around him. So let's look at verses 3 to 7. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes, Paul says. If anyone is confident that he is, in Christ, he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. So let me point out several things here in Paul's vision of the unseen realm and how the Corinthians are involved. First, Paul and his friends see themselves as in the world, but not of the world. See, they walk in the flesh. It's true. They walk in this life. In other words, they live in the visible realm. They're human. Human, yes. But who lives in them? And who lives in the true believers in Corinth? And who lives in true believers everywhere? 
He, he does. Remember 1 John 4, 4. He says, greater is He, the Spirit of God, who lives within us than He that's in the world. God is greater. God Himself living on the inside of the believer. Almighty power with more than enough force to wage warfare in the unseen realm. And so Paul and his friends can see to the point, they are in the flesh, yes, they are human. But where the false teachers were in error was they did not live their lives by the flesh, as in they didn't live their lives in accordance with the world uh, standards and perspective of the world's ways. For Paul, walking according to the flesh means all is well. Well, how so? See, when non-Christians live their lives according to the flesh, there is no battle. Why is that? Because the enemy has already taken them captive to do his will. Certainly, the unseen enemies hate non-Christians just as much as they do Christians. And when they are through with the non-Christians, they will destroy them. But Christians, we see what is unseen, don't we? We see the spiritual battle and the means to wage the war, namely having the divine power within us to do so. But notice where the war is raged, around strongholds, around arguments, lofty opinions against the knowledge of God. Thoughts are more inclusively minds. So where is the war waged? In a phrase, in the realm of the mind. Thoughts. Now hold that thought because we're going to come back to it in a second. There's a second place of spiritual warfare is waged as well. It is in the will. In the will. Paul was ready to punish what? Acts of disobedience by using the authority that the Lord gave him. Simply put, spiritual warfare is waged in the mind and the will of the person. But where was the target area of false teachers? It wasn't the mind. It wasn't the will. It was the emotions. That kind of makes sense, though, doesn't it? Why they would attack that. See, because it begins with eternal life, the very thing that the king died to give us. Remember what John 17, 3 says, as Jesus was praying his prayer to the Father right before he went to the cross, he said, eternal life is what? Feeling the only true God, right? Is that what it says? No. What? Knowing the only true God. Knowing. And Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. The Lord also said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Acts of the will, obedience here. See, truth involves, truth and knowledge involve the mind. Showing the Lord love by heartfelt obedience involves the will. And this is where the battle lies. And in the arena of the mind and the will is where Paul directed his firepower. A stronghold here is a picture of a military fortress, vividly showing the strength of false arguments. The warfare Paul speaks of destroys falsehoods with the truth of the gospel. The bottom line for Paul is that Christ and his ways obliterate the lies of the evil one. And once lies are overcome, then a born-again son or daughter of God can obey the Lord from the heart that he or she might be pleasing to the Lord. It starts there, not in the emotions. And when that happens, when a son or daughter of God begin to obey the Lord 
and get to know him better, guess what happens with the emotions? Every emotion that the false teachers peddle through their lives now become emotions experienced in a heart purified by the forgiveness of sin and new life found in Christ. But here's where the battle rages for Paul. Truth enters the mind and is expressed through the will, and then the emotions will follow. Seemingly, though, the false teacher's approach was front-loading the emotions, particularly the feel-good emotions. And when they captured their emotions through powerful but deceptive experiences, it was a simple matter then to capture the minds and the wills and fill their souls with lies. And in our day, we see this all around, don't we? The largest megachurches in the world put a premium on music. And they call that, in and of itself, worship. I thought the time you entered into the service all the way to the end was worship, right? Not them, oftentimes. They see the music and that's it. That's, That's what, by definition, means as worship. And the message that the songs carry are often in error or downright blasphemous. One example is found in the song. I think the song's right. What a beautiful name. The talented voice speaks out of the mic and says these words. You didn't want heaven without us. So, Jesus, you brought heaven down. Really? Really? As if God was lonely? He needed us? Does God need anything? No. But that how, how popular is that song? Or how about this one? To put a, a few decades of distance, this song is, You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Well, it's a nice sentiment, but is that true? Kind of. But Jesus lives regardless of whether he's in our heart or not, right? So the truth is, Jesus lives, Period. It doesn't, it's not based on our subjective experience. Or what about the many people who come to corporate worship and they leave with their eyes red and their nose running and they say, you know, God met with me today. You know, I cried all the way through the service. That's how we know that God met with me. Now, it may have been that the Lord met with you or met with that person and, and God ex- allowed them to experience those tears. Yeah, that's great. But how often... Do, a per, do people come to expect those kinds of emotional experiences? And if they don't get those emotional experiences, what do they feel like? God did meet with me today. Well, guess what? We come to meet God, don't we? We come to give Him our worship, even if we don't, quote-unquote, get anything from it. We're serving the King. When emotions are primary, we can become easily deceived. So what is successful warfare? The gospel, that is successful warfare as we wage it. We as Christians continue to believe the gospel, and we continue to give the gospel to others. For the gospel is truth. The gospel is the power of salvation. Not emotions, it's the gospel. And Paul, seeing the danger, in essence, tells this to the Corinthians. In verse 7, he says, open your eyes. The false teachers among you claim to have Christ's authority, but don't forget We have Christ's authority as well. And look at verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who those who are commending themselves, 
But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So what's Paul saying here? Corinthians, the only thing that these false teachers have is their mutual admiration society. They talk one another up. They have no divine authority, though. It's as though they've created a niche market, so to speak. I can imagine them saying to the Corinthians, hey, you know, you know that John Jacob over there, he can amazingly predict the future. He's got that gift. Or how about Jerry Joe? He can heal the most difficult cases. And guess what I can do? I can raise the dead. <laughs> can your Paul do that? Well, what's the apostle's answer to all of that nonsense? They don't have understanding of what really is going on. Paul sees the unseen battle. Spiritual casualties are all around, and he knows the weapons are mighty and penetrating the strongholds of the lies of the enemy. He knows how to do this. And though the false teachers can boast of their abilities and insights, supposedly, they don't have the truth. That's the bottom line there. Once again, the Corinthians, though, can't see the battle raging all around them. Why? Because they're in a spiritual funk. They're torn between truth and lies, between the false teachers and Paul. But let's not feel too sorry for the Corinthians as though they were victims in all of this. Remember why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians? Divisions, right? The very first problem that Paul dealt with was playing on their favorites or playing their favorites up and dividing the church. One says, I follow Paul. One says, I follow Paulus. One says, I'm the spiritual. I'm going to follow Jesus. In a sense, they began to set themselves up for the acceptance of false teachers in their midst from the first day they divided their church over personalities. So what was the solution for them? Christians, you know the answer. God is not silent. He's not whispering. He sent you, Paul, with an eternal lifeline. Don't resist that any longer. Corinthians, come out of the gray. Kneel before the one who saved you, the Lord Jesus. Stand with the one who brought you the gospel, the apostle Paul. And we've seen now how Paul dealt with the false accusations of the false teachers. We also took a look at the unseen world that Paul saw. He warned them of the danger that they were in, but they didn't seem to know or to care. But how do we know that they didn't seem to know or care? Because the false teachers were still there. So let's take a brief look now at Paul's legitimate claim that he had concerning the Corinthians as in the territory, the actual geography that the Lord gave him. In verses 13 and 18. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will only boast with regard to the area of influence that God assigned to us to reach even you. For we were not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond the limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And I see here two deeply profound things in Paul's ministry. First, Corinth is one of the areas that God actually assigned to Paul. God assigned that to him. We can see this is almost like an Abram moment. Remember this? God called Abraham out of the earth of the Chaldees, and he says, I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. I will promise you this land. And so in a sense, God took Paul and his friends and led them to start a church in Corinth. See, Paul had a God-centered vision of life. And it also helps when the Lord shows up and speaks to you as well, right? (laughs) I mean, if the Lord spoke to me, I think I would have a God-centered vision of life too. But Paul saw his ministry as one where God placed him in. But remember where Corinth was. What was Corinth all about? Sin City, as in Vegas, has nothing on Corinth. Remember how a person who was very loosely in their morals was associated with Corinth? They were Corinthianized. Paul was not exactly at home with all of this. You knew that, right? Who was Paul? What was his past? He was a former member of the Jewish ruling council whose job it was to make sure that his fellow Jews adhered to the 613 laws. Remember when Paul went to Athens, he saw all the idolatry. He was extremely upset with all of that. We might say that his heart was eating him up. This idolatry was eating his lunch and his breakfast besides. But he went to Corinth on God's errand. And remember, when he first went there, there were no Christians in Corinth, not one. But Paul was convinced that Corinth was where he needed to be, and he spent the next 18 months there. Paul waged tremendous spiritual battles there. And for you and me, how clearly do you see where you are, see where I am, your line of work, your friendships, your relationships as being on God's errand? Do you see your life there like that? We as the Lord's disciples are also His servants. If we want to be His faithful servants, we have only one answer to His assignments. Yes, Lord. A challenge for all of us. Let's begin to see where we are right now as God's assigned mission field when it comes to evangelism. If you don't have anybody in your circle of influence, that is a, that's a non-Christian you can see as God's school for training disciples. So guess what? Either way, you're not off the hook. You're either an evangelist or you're a disciple maker, one or the other. The geographical place where God has placed us, we're here on His assignment, His errand, and we're to work for Him until He tells us to go somewhere else. The second profound truth I see is how Paul attacked the false teachers. Paul and his friends were faithful to come to Corinth. God used them to begin the church there. This was their turf, their turf. God gave it to them. And as it was put by one author, the false teachers were trespassing. So they needed to go. Paul and his friends had more work to do. They wanted to even expand the work of the gospel in areas around Corinth. And so the other side of the coin ought to be obvious. If God gave Corinth to Paul and his friends, God did not give it to the false teachers. And so spiritually speaking, 
Paul had every right to show them the door because it was the false teachers who were trespassing in Corinth. And I see this not only as a rebuke to the false teachers in the Corinthian church, but also the leadership in the Corinthian church as well. I asked earlier in their message, where is the leadership in the church? They were supposed to be the shepherds caring for the sheep and guarding the sheep. And I can hear Paul saying to them, shepherds, kick out those false teachers. They've got no right to be there. Come out of the grace. Take your stand. Tell them in no uncertain terms, you're not allowed to, hear. You're not allowed to be here. So go. Get out of here. And I see a great application for us as well, both personally and as a church. Personally, every false teacher which comes with their heresy to us, makes available to us, ought to be off limits. We ought to put up a no trespassing sign at the doors of our minds and our hearts. How do we do that? We take them off our podcasts. We stop buying their books. We stop taking in their YouTube videos. Their teaching is deadly, and it will ruin our spirit. They are spiritual trespassers. They have no right of access to our minds, our wills, or our emotions. We've got to get rid of those guys and ladies. As Grace United, as a church, we have seen this also here. There were a couple of times when I had to confront some false teachers and false teachings over the years here. And I'm going to say that as the church advisor team, as the cat, you helped me to come to my senses during those times. Tell me to see more clearly and give me confidence that I needed to confront these false teachers. And I sometimes think about what life would have been like if I hadn't confronted them, if I had allowed this to come in and stay here. I shudder to think that. Where would we be? And so, cat, <laughs> thank you. Because we have policies in place now to prevent false teaching to come and to maintain themselves here. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the cats, so thank you. And so let's wrap up this message, though, the way Paul finishes up this chapter. He says, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Simply put, every local church, indeed, every follower of Jesus, loyal to the Lord, is commended by the Lord. As such, we have his power. We have his truth. We wage spiritual warfare by living and giving the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. We are not to be like the Corinthians who Paul had to rescue time and time again. They set themselves up by tolerating division in their midst. They left themselves open by tolerating false teachers and false teaching. So let's make sure that as followers of Jesus and as Grace United, we walk in the light, individually and corporately. May the song, the message of the song, He is Not Silent, serve as a cautionary tale to keep us out of the gray. The people said this desert never ends. We have no bread. Our throats are dry. Our heads are heavy and our feet need rest. Has he left us here to die? And we've forgotten all his words as if we never heard. We take our hearts and turn away. But he is not silent. He is not whispering. We are not quiet. We are not listening. He sends a lifeline. We keep resisting him. 
He is not silent. We are not listening. We wander through this world in disbelief, shake our heads at every tear, searching endlessly for some relief. Has He left us dying here? But we've forgotten all His words. Pretend we've never heard. We take our hearts and turn away. But He is not silent. He is not whispering. We are not quiet. We are not listening. We take our daily bread. And after we've been fed, we take our hearts and turn away. But He is not silent. He's not whispering. We are not quiet. We are not listening. Let's listen to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, through these stammering lips, we heard a message of challenge. We heard a message of walking in the light. We heard a message of taking a stand, choosing not to to be in the mushy middle, to come out of the gray, to walk in the light. Lord, you called us as your people to do that. I pray, Lord, for each one of us. I pray, Father, that you will help us to know which areas that we are in the gray in. Lord, I pray that you will ignite our passions for you. But Lord, base it on truth, not base it on emotions. Base it on what you have revealed to us, Lord, by your spirit in your word. Lord, you've given us, according to 2 Peter, everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to believe this, Lord. Help us to realize, maybe even for the first time, of who we are in Christ. That we don't have to just, just think we're, that Christianity is just another world religion among the, the, the pantheon of gods. Lord, you've given us the truth. Help us to stand on it. Help us to be convinced of it. And Lord, may we give our lives to you because you've given your life for us. So I pray that you would help us, lead us, guide us, give us strength to face the enemy. Allow us, Lord, to to use the weapons of warfare that you have given us, which is the gospel. The gospel is your power that you've given us to give to others, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Or may we believe it. May we be convinced of it. May we give our lives to you because you've given your life to us. Now, Father, I pray that as we have our giving time, Lord, this is a time of worship. Help us, Lord, to worship you with this way. Help us also, Lord, to be able to sing to you. There, there are places in our country even that we can't sing to you. But, Lord, we can sing here. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to do that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we'll give you thanks, Lord, and we'll give you praise for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.